Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I wanted to start off by talking about a weird legend about the Roman poet Virgil and an insect funeral. Uh, Robert, are you ready for some Virgil talk? Let's do it. Okay, so so Virgil was a poet who lived in the first century BCE during the, the Augustan period, so early imperial Rome. And uh, you, you might know him best from his most famous work, the epic poem, The Aeneid, which is about sort of the founding lineage of Rome and the adventures of the Trojan hero Aeneas, who after the Trojan War travels from Troy and eventually becomes the ancestor of the Roman people. Uh, Virgil is often considered one of the greatest Latin poets, and he was wildly popular during his own lifetime. Uh, you know, he he received commendations from from kings and the wealthy, and and you know, everybody thought like, "Wow, this this guy has just got the juice." And I had Virgil on my mind uh, a lot last year because Rachel and I were rereading Dante's Divine Comedy. And mm -hmm. if you'll recall, of course, Virgil is Dante the Pilgrim's guide through hell and purgatory in the Divine Comedy. So the spirit of Virgil, he's been living out the centuries in limbo because uh, though he was a very virtuous man, he's one of the virtuous pagans. He was never baptized as a Christian, so he can't go to heaven. He's got to hang out in this sort of antechamber of hell where everybody sits around sighing because nothing interesting is ever happening to them. Yeah, uh, but, I, I have to admit that I, I tend to, when anybody mentions Virgil, that's the first place my mind goes is Dante's Inferno, which is it's probably not fair. It's like if you were to mention the name of Socrates and they, someone were to go, oh, yeah, yeah, he's in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from <laughs> that's exactly, uh, 1989. <laughs> that's exactly where I knew you were going with that, Bill and Ted, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that, that is pretty good because, well, though, it, it's slightly different because it's not a, it's, he, he's not at all parodied. In the Divine Comedy. In fact, True. I would say it's exactly the opposite. In the Divine Comedy, he is... He is revered, yeah. Yes, he's he's reimagined as this, like, superhuman wizard. Mm -hmm. For for Dante, he... Uh, Virgil is the embodiment of wisdom and reason. So for the intended readers of the Divine Comedy, we're supposed to understand that Virgil is like a 10 out of 10 platinum level cool beast. He is just like <laughs> this ultimate wizard of knowledge. And about half of the state, you remember how like, like basically every other time Dante talks in the first two books of the Divine Comedy, it's just to say like, Virgil, you are so right. I would never doubt your wisdom. Tell me more, you know, and, and it kind of sinks in because I remember when we got to the end of the Purgatorio and Virgil does not get to move on to, to heaven with Dante. He has to stay behind and Beatrice takes him on from there. We were really mad that Virgil didn't get to go to heaven. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, so much, so much time is devoted to him. It, you, you, and also, so much is stripped away at that point. You know, it's like it's it's hard to follow Dante into uh, Paradiso, uh, just because you know that there there aren't going to be any demons uh, playing trumpets with their bums or anything. There's not going to be, <laughs> uh, you know, monsters so much, uh, and uh, Virgil's not going to be there. So it's it's you know, it's all, part three in a series is always tough. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the, the the trilogy is a hard sell to to complete with dignity. Uh and but, but the I think for modern readers that 
sense of injustice about Virgil that is interpreted, uh, you know, by the characters in the Inferno as, you know, perfect divine justice. It's the one person version of the dynamic that plays out throughout the whole thing, where as they're Mm -hmm. going through hell, it just seems like, wow, this is really unfair. Yeah. But anyway, long before Virgil was guiding Dante up the mountain of purgatory in his post-mortem shade form, uh, people were telling lots of legends about his life. And one of those legends is that once at his home in Rome, Virgil built a tomb and held an extravagant funeral for a dead fly, like a fly as in the insect with six legs Mm -hmm. and wings. Uh, This story is very probably untrue, and we'll get to why that is in a bit. But first, I wanted to explore some of the details. And uh, for this, I was reading an article by George Pendle in Cabinet Magazine in 2007 called Virgil's Fly. And he describes the legend in the following way, quote, Held in the grounds of Virgil's home on Rome's Esquiline Hill, the funeral attracted the great and good of the city. Dirges were sung and tributes read. Virgil's patron, Mycenas, delivered a lengthy and moving eulogy to the departed insect, and Virgil was himself said to have uttered a few of his exquisite verses over the tiny carcass. A tomb had been erected, and the lifeless body of the fly was placed within it to the wails and moans of the professional mourners. So lavish were the commemorations that the cost was estimated at over 800,000 sesterces. So that's the gist. According to this story, Virgil and his close friends spend huge amounts of money and effort to celebrate the life and memory of an insect, concluding with the insect's burial in a marble tomb. Why on earth would this be? Well, the legend itself also contains an answer to this. So to read from Pendle again, quote, But the reason for the funeral was not due to extravagance, eccentricity, or even emotion. Having defeated Julius Caesar's assassins at the Battle of Philippi, the second triumvirate was at that very moment engaged in confiscating the estates of the rich and dividing them among the war veterans returning from the battlefield. Only one exception was given. If the estate held a burial plot, it was not to be touched. (laughs) By burying his housefly, Virgil saved his house. So here it has transformed into uh, a classic, one of our favorite genres, loophole fiction. Yes. <laughs> Remember when we did the uh, anthology of horror segment in October on deals with the devil and about mm-hmm. how many of these stories, I think especially later, deal with the devil's stories, less so in the earlier ones. They're about somebody saving the day by figuring out a loophole that they can exploit to get out of their end of a pact with Satan. And I wonder again, what's so appealing about this kind of plot resolution? It seems like maybe this would be the kind of thing that's especially interesting to to people who live in a more litigious kind of culture. Could be. I, I can also imagine that if you're if you're if you've ever taken advantage of a loophole, it probably helps out if you demonize uh, the the legal authority to some degree. If you make them into a devil, because uh, in all these stories, it's the loophole that saves your soul. Whereas um, I think there are plenty of cases in in real in real life where uh, the loophole might have the opposite effect. You know, right. uh, the, the loophole is the um, is is the refuge of um, of less savory individuals at times. Right. Cheaters and scammers with crafty lawyers to help help them get out of trouble by exploiting some kind of, you know, you know loophole in the wording of something. Yeah. Is it isn't that always like that's always a really frustrating thing when somebody uh 
evades the obvious spirit of justice by exploiting the exact wording of something. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I can't help but wonder if there's there's some connection there, you know? Uh, you make your stories about uh, cheating the devil with your loopholes, and then you, you feel better about the sort of implied devil that you're cheating uh, through your own loophole usage. Well, it's actually funny. There is, uh, in this Pendle article, he also talks about a medieval legend about Virgil, and we'll get into more of these legends about Virgil's life as we go on, but one of these medieval legends about Virgil is that uh, Virgil frees a demon from the, there's like a devil trapped in a bottle and Virgil lets it out so that it will empower him to do something great. I think maybe he uses its powers to, to get a long road paved or something like that. But anyway, once he has, a, he has used this demon power. Now I think the demon's supposed to get his into the bargain and is going to do something really bad. But first Virgil's like, wow, I, you know, you're so powerful. Could you show me again how you fit your frame into that bottle? So the devil does, and then he corks it back up. So he gets to have <laughs> his magic and keep the, the genie in the bottle as well. Oh, that's great. I don't know how to climb into an oven and I've never sat on a shovel. <laughs> That's some Jack Frost for That's us. That's some Jack Frost. That's from uh, some Ivanushka right there. So in that spirit, there's obviously this interesting process by which after Virgil's death, remember he lived in the first century BCE, in the centuries after his death, his poetry was greatly admired and revered, but not just his poetry. He himself was greatly admired and revered and took on the aspects of a saint in many ways, even though he had been a pagan. Uh, there's an interesting note in, in his cabinet article where Pendle shares this fact that kind of helps make more sense of the almost absurd reverence shown for Virgil in the Divine Comedy. In these, in centuries after his death, many Romans and, and later Italians in the Middle Ages thought of Virgil as possessing a literally supernatural or near supernatural genius, that there was something magical about his poetry. The same way people would feel there is magic in the holy text of their religion. And one, one, Clear illustration of this is that in the second century CE under the Antonines, uh, there had arisen this form of divination. And we, we've done episodes on divination in the past. You know, there, there are various ways of trying to sort of get, uh, turn some sort of noise or random input into an interpreted type of information about hidden knowledge. You know, what's going to happen in the future or, or some other thing you want to know but can't. Uh, and and so Virgil's poetry was itself used for divination. And so people would randomly select passages from the Aeneid and then read those passages as some kind of prediction about their future or statement about some other kind of hidden knowledge. Uh, Pendle writes, quote, It is said that these sortes Virgiliane, or Virgilian lots, were consulted by both the emperors Hadrian and Severus, and with each consultation, Virgil's memory began to take on an increasingly mystical air. But anyway, to, to get back to the story about Virgil and the fly. So again, this story is almost certainly not true. Uh, there are elements of it that fit within known history. Apparently, Virgil did actually have a house on the Esquiline Hill. Uh, the second triumvirate was actually engaged in seizing estates so they could be given to returning veterans from military campaigns. Uh, but that's just the, the accurate stuff about the setting. The main reason the story is probably untrue is simply that there is no contemporary evidence or record of it. 
nobody anywhere near Virgil's lifetime mentions anything about it. It only shows up in much, much later sources. Rather, it seems to be one of those legends that accumulates on a, you know, sort of gloms onto a revered historical figure due to a chain of associative thinking. Uh, so what's the chain? Well, that brings us to a an absurd and absurdly interesting Latin poem called the Culex, which means uh, I think you can interpret it as like the gnat or the fly. Culex is also a, a genus name for certain types of mosquitoes. So I think it means like a flying insect. And so this is a poem that was published sometime after Virgil's death, uh, and it was attributed to him as part of his juvenalia. It was widely said, okay, so this is something that Virgil actually wrote, but he wrote it when it was young, and that's that's why it's maybe not as good as his other poetry. Modern scholars, I think, mostly really doubt that Virgil actually wrote this. Uh, it, it would technically be a poem in the pastoral genre, so that's poetry about the supposedly blissful uncomplicated life of people in the countryside. Uh, it's usually about shepherds or herdsmen, often a lot of references to flowers and naps and clouds and cool waters, the idols of Pan. And it, it made me think about how, you know, so for hundreds of years, the pastoral poem from the classical period, even into, into the Renaissance was, and uh, well, actually I'd say even into the romantic poetry era, uh, there, there, is this tendency to fall back on this classic genre of stuff about the fields and the simple life of shepherds and all that uh, and, and how great it is. And I wonder if this is sort of realized in modern culture in our desire for like uh, simple, aesthetically gentle content like the Great British Bake Off. Is, is that yeah. the pastoral poetry of the modern era? Yeah, yeah, perhaps, you know. Um sort of like soothing and non-offensive perhaps uh you know just just you know, it's not even really escapism it's just i mean i guess to a certain extent it is escapism but uh uh yeah perhaps i could see that connection I don't know. It connected in my brain. But uh, so there's a plot in this poem, the Kulex. It is widely regarded as absolutely ridiculous. But here is how it goes. A shepherd goes out in the morning to take his flocks to pasture. And there's some standard pastoral poetry musing on how the simple life of a shepherd uh, living in the fields is so much better than the fraught life of a rich man, because it's better to throw your body down in the tender grass and lay your head among the flower buds than to be consumed with the grief and the greed that curdles the hearts of the rich and powerful. So the shepherd is living this nice idyllic life. Uh, he, he takes his flock to a fountain in the woods and there he falls asleep lying in the shade. But while he's asleep, a giant horrible snake slithers up. Uh, it's coming to the fountain where it likes to lie in the mud and it decides it's going to bite the shepherd in his sleep and kill him. But just before the snake attacks, a gnat buzzes down and stings the shepherd on the eye. And this wakes him up and the shepherd crushes the gnat, but it also wakes him up just in time to see the snake and to save himself. Uh, so he beats the snake to death with a piece of wood, which I would say in reality is almost never necessary. Even if a snake is, is dangerous, you can run away from it. Right. But this is a storybook snake. And you know how they, they do. They do things like wrap around you and tie you to a tree or swallow mm -hmm. you whole. So, um, <laughs> you know, within the context of the story, maybe it's justified. Right. So, yeah, he gets this, this piece of wood, beats the snake into a bloody pulp. And then later, the uh, the shepherd goes to sleep again, 
And the ghost of the gnat appears. It comes to him in a dream, and the gnat chews him out for not being grateful. He's like, why'd you crush me? I saved your life. And the shepherd wakes up, and he feels remorse for what he's done, and he builds a tomb in honor of the gnat, and then decorates the tomb with flowers and fruit. And so, uh, to read briefly from the, the tomb section of the poem, it says, For him at length did heedful care, the toil begun completing, gathered up the piled material, and with a plenteous mound of earth a tomb arose in circle shaped. Around it placing stone of marble smooth, he plants it, mindful of his constant care, and growing here throughout the brilliant ring, acanthus is, and bashful roses too, and every kind of violet. And then there are a bunch of lines about flowers. I'm going to skip towards the end of that flower section. <laughs> um, the amaranth is here, and grapes which large do cluster, ever flowering picris too. Narcissus isn't absent there, in whom his beauty's radiance from Cupid's fire, for limbs his own begot a hot desire, and all the flowers that blooming seasons know. With these the mound is planted o'er, then on the front is placed the inscription which asserts, the letters saying it with silent speech, O tiny gnat, the keeper of the flocks, doth pay to thee, deserving such a thing, the duty of a ceremonial tomb, in payment for the gift of life to him. All right. Well, well there you have it. The, the, a poem about honoring the, the gnat that saved him from the snake when he was sleeping on the job. This is something I'm actually confused about. Are shepherds supposed to just sleep while they're watching their flocks? Or are they not supposed to be watching? I don't, <laughs> I don't know, but you do. It is part of that pastoral sort of um, image, you know. Mm-hmm. It, like we've all encountered some version of that before. Which I'm, I'm guessing most of that is just yeah, it's, it's pining for a uh, this. Um, this presumed idyllic lifestyle mm-hmm. uh, in the country where it's like, oh, you're just looking after sheep. It's just like a nap all day. That's all, just all it is. Right. Uh, glossing over all the other stuff that comes all the hard with work. being a shepherd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, once again, it seems that modern scholars do not accept that Virgil actually wrote this poem. Uh, Virgil did write pastoral poetry. Uh, for example, in his Eclogues, there's this great part in the, I think, the 10th Eclogue where he concludes with a wonderful passage to cite at bedtime uh, where, mm-hmm. where he writes, Come, let us rise. The shade is wont to be baneful to singers. Baneful is the shade cast by the juniper. Crops sicken, too, in the shade. Now homeward, having fed your fill, Eve's star is rising. Go, my she-goats, go. <laughs> okay, I guess that's, that's pretty good. Uh, but... Uh... But yeah, if you were just going off of the, this passage, I don't know if you'd, you'd really buy Dante's hype for Virgil. Um, <laughs> well, the, I mean... The she-goats part is nice. Th- that is the good part. And it is in translation. Uh, I think you know there, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, for every type of poetry in translation, there's a lot of stuff that's lost. But yeah. anyway, so the, the, the Kulex, eh, there's a good chance it was written by someone else and then published under Virgil's name. Uh, and it may well have had some kind of other meaning, like a veiled meaning as a political allegory, though I didn't follow the threads on that. Uh, but despite the doubt about the authorship, the poem seems to have given rise to all kinds of bizarre fly legends associated with Virgil. Um, so uh, to read a segment from Pendle, I thought this was amazing. Quote, one of the most popular Neapolitan myths held that Virgil had created a bronze fly the size of a frog and placed it on one of the gates of Naples. The talisman remained there for eight years, during which time no flies could enter the city. 
In a similar vein, armies attacking Naples were said to have been harassed by swarms of flies sent after them by the poet. The fly would become Virgil's magical familiar over the ensuing years, never far from any tale of his exploits. And that was not all. Possibly due to this control of pestilence, Virgil was said to have created baths that cured all illnesses in a butcher's block on which meat stayed fresh for six weeks. No longer renowned as the master of grammar and philosophy, Virgil's achievements were put down to his mathematical knowledge. In only a few centuries, Virgil had gone from being the preeminent poet of the Roman Empire to a Neapolitan enchanter with a penchant for magical insects. Uh, and there's all kinds of fabulous stuff about medieval legends about Virgil becoming more of a necromancer type figure that mm. he's got all these strange magical powers like that, you know, that he commands the, the, the insects of the air and casts them down upon his enemies or can save you from them. And, uh, and I love that, that, that this was this, like, I, I don't know if there was anything in his actual life to associate him with flies. It's only this poem that he probably didn't even actually write and isn't actually <laughs> very good. That was attributed to him later that gave rise to all these strange stories wow that's something yeah i i don't uh, i don't recall you know picking up on the, the the idea of the wizard virgil but uh but now i'm fascinated by it well i think one thing is by the middle ages he had these broadly understood wizard associations but i think dante was sort of moving back against that and mm. and saying like no let's fit him more into the uh the christian cosmology and say that he's more this beacon of reason and wisdom in the pagan world but we do see uh, this wizardization taking more hold with other figures, uh, like Roger Bacon comes to mind. Uh, and we've talked about this on the show before. Oh, yeah. I remember in one of our previous episodes, we sort of concluded that maybe one of the greatest contributions of Roger Bacon uh, as a, as a you know, man of great learning in the Middle Ages and the 13th century was that he was very open to sources of knowledge from all over the world. So a lot of what he did was say, like, apply things that he learned from texts from the medieval Muslim world, uh, right. like uh, the texts of Ibn al-Haytham and, and other things, or like uh, studying objects brought to him from, from countries afar. So he was sort of a good collector of knowledge from many places, uh, but somehow gets this, I don't know, gets this label affixed to him like he's some kind of wonder worker, which he, he wasn't really in life. Right. I mean, he was, uh, it seems like he was a very impressive individual, but yeah, the, the, he, he's begun, he, he instantly becomes elevated to like arch alchemist status mm -hmm. in some of these tellings. You know, he takes on all the guise of some sort of a, a mad scientist in a, in a, like a, a serial adventure. The main reason I think I was originally inspired to look into this topic and do this episode about uh, insects and, and funerals was when I read an interesting article on Atlas Obscura that was also by George Pendle, the same writer as that uh, Cabinet Magazine article about Virgil and the Fly. And this article is on the broader topic of insects and funerary rites. Yeah, this was a good uh, good article by by Pendle, the Fly Master here. Um, <laughs> It touches on you know, numerous associations between insects and death. Uh, particularly, the author uh, points out, quote, necklaces of stone-carved flies to ward off maggots worn by uh, the ancient Egyptian dead. 
the idea being here that the maggots were seen as a threat to one's ka or ba, you know, the um, like the, the vital one of the vital essences in, in the body, mm-hmm. uh, in the individual. And uh, I found this interesting. So the first thing I did was I looked up to see if if Gene Kritsky had written on this. Gene Ah. Kritsky, of course, is a former guest on the show. He wrote a book called The Tears of Ray about... um, uh, and the ancient Egyptian use of uh, bees and honey and how they, they treated bees and honey, both um, in terms of just creating products uh, as well as uh, you know magical uses, etc. I was thinking about that episode and about Gene Kritsky when I was recording a recent uh, episode of The Artifact I did, which was yep. about ancient Egyptian head cones. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, if you haven't listened to that artifact yet, uh, I thought it was a lot of fun, so maybe you should check it out. But the short version is there are these white cones depicted on top of people's heads in a lot of ancient Egyptian art, but nobody had ever found any physical evidence that they existed in reality. So there's been this debate about what were these cones? Did they ever actually exist in the world or are they some kind of artistic convention? And uh, the uh, and and in recent years, there has been an excavation that uncovered physical examples of these head cones for the first time at a couple of graves in Amarna in Egypt. But unlike some of the theories in which these cones were made of like perfumed animal fat, these cones were made out of biological wax, which. I knew immediately when I read that, oh, that's got to be beeswax because of the role mm. of beeswax in ancient Egyptian culture. And sure enough, that that seems like what they almost definitely were made of. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, we've covered a, already. We've covered a few different uh, Egyptian topics in the artifact. So, mm-hmm. uh, so definitely check those out. I'm sure we'll do more. Uh, but but in this case, yeah, I turned to, to Gene Kritsky's work, uh, and particularly I looked at a book that he wrote with an, an author by the name of Ron Cherry titled Insect Mythology. Mm. And so they get into this a bit. They point out that in ancient Egypt, the fly, first of all, it was also a symbol of valor. Because what does a pesky fly do? Well, it'll, it'll move in, it'll bite you, try to bite you. you, you drive it away by swatting your hand around, but then what does it do? It comes back. It's persistent, and therefore it is a symbol of valor. Wow, I've never thought of that before. But yeah, when the fly comes in to sting at you, it's like a human going up against a dragon or a giant. Yeah. And so we have this uh, this one example in particular where Queen Ahotep gave her sons, uh, three of her sons, golden flies to honor their fights um, uh, against an adversary. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. And uh, you can actually look up examples of this because I believe – uh, the idea is these three flies were then buried with her and then were part of the um, there's the treasures that were unearthed with her body. And, yeah, they're these beautiful golden fly ornaments, uh, but they stand for valor. Now, as for the funeral necklace, uh, yes, this seems accurate as well. So in the Egyptian climate, um, flies would take to the dead rather quickly and freshly hatched flies would be seen leaving the body before embalming could be completely finished. Um, these flies were seen as, again, the individual's ka or ba leaving the body. So the fly necklaces were a way to essentially put flies back on the body, to return this leaked ka to the deceased. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and this is really interesting as well. The ka or ba is sometimes represented as a bird with a human head, but you also see versions of it that consist of a fly with a human head. Oh. And so, <laughs> the uh, the authors here, um, Kritsky and, and Cherry, they they point out that uh, you know there was there is at least at the time this was written, which I I want to say was uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, 
at the time, and I imagine still to this day, there's the surviving folk belief that certain varieties of flies with a greenish or bluish metallic body were not to be killed as these contained or were likely to contain the spirit of someone who had died. So, uh, and then they say this would just be one of many modern beliefs that are seemingly tied to the traditions and beliefs from the age of the pharaohs. But the idea of a fly with a human head certainly also makes me think of uh, some some 20th century uh, cinematic literature. Yeah, yeah. It, it brings to mind the 1958 movie The Fly, which ends with that uh, that scene well, where me. you – Yeah, with the help me scene with the, the fly with the human head. Which uh, we, we had to stand corrected on. That is not Vincent Price whose head right. is on that fly. Vincent so, yeah, Price, different actor. Yeah, he plays like his brother or something. Yeah. But, but yeah, so it brings to mind uh, a modern monster movie. But it's also interesting because on a physical level, this is correct. There is something of the departed's body anyway uh, in the substance of the emergent fly. Ooh, there is the, a connection to be made. Yeah, the chemical energy from – yes, exactly. Yeah. So again, the idea is, is not so much to keep flies away, but it's like to return what has leaked out to the body through symbolic flies. Now, as for flies in general, uh, Kritsky and Cherry point out that, that flies are often associated with death just throughout global myth cycles. Uh, and they roll through a number of examples in their book. You have like the Greek uh, daemon of de- decomposition, uh, Uranomos, uh, and this was depicted often as either a vulture or a fly, uh, you know, a consumer of carrion. Mm-hmm. Other fly demons can be found as well, such as, of course, Beelzebub, at least in his demonic interpretations later. He was originally a Syrian god. You have uh, the, the Yazads and Nasu of Zoroastrianism. In Nasu, uh, they describe as, quote, the demoness of dead matter. Mm. And flies were also a symbol of torment for early European Christians. The god Loki was said to have taken on the form of a fly in order to pass through a keyhole. And this transformation, the transformation of one in, uh, one's body into that of a fly, this has also been associated with witches, they write, in Hungarian traditions. However, in all this, they point out two outstanding exceptions to the negative roles of mythological flies. And they're pretty interesting because these kind of take me back to uh, what uh, you've shared from that poem uh, that has been attributed to Virgil. Uh, so the first example is Big Biter. Big Biter is an overlord of fish in uh, what I believe is, is, is currently known as the, the Innu tribe of uh, – and this is a, a Canadian um, uh, First Nations people. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, this spirit would have taken the form of a fly. And uh, Kritsky and, uh, and Cherry write that he, quote, hovered over the fishermen in order to see how his subjects were being treated. Occasionally, an overlord would bite the fisherman to remind him that the fish were in his custody and to warn against wastefulness. Whoa. <laughs> so so I, I like that, the idea of – I also, it just kind of feels like it's kind of – illustrates the the you know the universal experience of fishing mm-hmm. you know you're you're, <laughs> you're perhaps going to you know gaze off into space you're you're going to be bit by insects mm-hmm. uh and then maybe have to con- confront the possibility of wastefulness um but anyway another one is big fly and this one is in the navajo religion and it is a mentor or helper that mediates between humans and the gods and so it'll it'll frequently show up in stories and uh, and appear to a hero and tell them how to proceed. And so that's the example that reminds me specifically of what we see in that poem attributed to Virgil. Yes, not just as a helper who who intervenes to save his life, but one who later appears to teach him a lesson. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, uh, one thing, of course, that, that they drive home in this book is that it's worth remembering that other insects had entirely different roles in ancient Egyptian traditions. Uh, the scarab beetle, for instance, symbolizes perpetual life and renewal. Uh, Kepri is, in fact, the dawn manifestation of, of Ra or Re, the sun god, and uh, de- derived. And this is derived from Kepr, which meant to become or to be transformed. And so the reason for this is twofold, according to Geraldine Pinch in the book Egyptian Mythology. First, dung beetles rolling spheres of dung were compared to the movement of the sun across the sky. Uh, you know, something that would be carried by the gods in the the, the sky barge. Uh, and secondly, the sight of young beetles emerging from buried dung balls, this raised ideas of self-generation. And so mm-hmm. these acts of transformation uh, could have applied, uh, would have applied rather to more than just birth and death, but also to the various rites of passage in one's life. So not just being born, not just dying, but also, you know, growing up, changing who you are, this sort of perpetual act of emerging and becoming. Oh, I like this because uh, I, I think it's something I've seen from Egyptologists in recent years who some, I think sometimes emphasize that older schools of Egyptology would, would sometimes overemphasize the, the prevalence of thinking about death and the afterlife in ancient mm-hmm. Egyptian culture and that this might just be a result of the bias in what types of artifacts are preserved for us to look at to get a sense of their culture. And so, so, so yeah, I, I like the idea of like seeing how it has a lot to do with birth and life itself as well. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is a theme that I actually just touched on in one of the uh, artifact episodes having to deal with the Cairo toe. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if this has come out yet by the time this episode publishes, but at any rate, it has to do with uh, uh, an element, um, an artifact that uh, could certainly be interpreted as something that is just about the dead, but upon closer examination is is far more about the living and the, the experience of living people. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, even though it is fascinating to know all these things about uh, ancient Egyptian funerary rituals and their beliefs about death and the afterlife. You can easily get this mistaken assumption that like in ancient Egypt, all anyone did was die and be entombed and think about death. And right. obviously that can't be true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were human beings and they they were they were subject to all the other whims and obsessions of human life. Uh, now, in, in terms of their uh, other relationships with uh, with insects and arachnids, uh, scorpions, for instance, arachnids were considered just enemies of humanity. Uh, but they were also associated with the goddess Sirkit, who pr- who protected the body of the deceased, as well as the canopic jars that would contain organs. Um, but uh, to come back to that uh, Atlas Obscura article by George Pendle, uh, they write that uh, there's a particular civilization of northern Peru, uh, the the Mochi or the uh, Mochica. Uh, this would have uh, been a civilization pre-Columbian, of course, but also pre-Incan uh, that ran from around 100 to 750 CE. And they seemingly practiced some manner of sky burial in which the flies that, uh, that, that lighted upon the dead and then emerged from the dead were interpreted as an essential part of the spirit's journey. Ah, maybe much like uh, carrion birds would be in some other types of sky burial type traditions? Yeah, that, that was where my mind instantly went to like the Tibetan model of where a, a body is sort of processed for carrion birds in a, you know, an elevated rocky area where you know, other modes of burial are, are not as uh, much of an option. Mm-hmm. And this would be a way of like returning the body to the world, to the element uh, through scavengers, through carrion consumers. 
So I decided to look into this a little bit more because this was instantly fascinating as well. You know, I have this example that turns things on its head a bit. Uh, There's a 2010 study I was reading published in the Journal of Archaeological Science by Hutchett and Greenberg. And a lot of this theory depends on the post-mortem interval in remains, how long the bodies uh, of these peoples were exposed prior to burial. Hmm. And, um, and and that's one of the keys there is, is that it's not simply – well, I'll get into this here. But, like, it's not just like, okay, then they left the bodies out. No, uh, the, the, this would have been part of a more protracted uh, funeral rite. I see. So the, the mochi, they excelled in ceramics. They practiced human sacrifice. Um, and, and to be clear, a lot of ancient cultures did, um, not to sweep human sacrifice under the rug or anything. But I think as we've touched on before, I think we it, it pays to be fair in looking at particular cultures and regions that are often highlighted for this sort of thing, uh, that we have to sort of keep them uh, keep in mind that that plenty of other ancient uh, cultures also did this, did uh, human sacrifice as well. And they were no exception. Uh, but they apparently had a complex religious system with complex mortuary practices supported by evidence of delayed burials, grave reopenings, and secondary offerings of human remains. Their ceramic illustrations reveal a lot about the role of flies in their beliefs. With uh, they're, they're, For instance, there are these uh, motifs of flies following prisoners to execution in anticipation of, mm. uh, of their corpses, as well as oval-shaped motifs that may represent flies emerging uh, from the puparia. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting to, to think about this. This would have been a society where instead of sort of taking the Egyptian route and saying, well, the, the, the flies are part of the soul leaving the body and we'll, we have this magical uh, symbolism that will 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 uh, will prevent that or reverse the 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 uh, uh, the, the, the leakage. Uh, this is like a celebration of it. It would seem that's the argument anyway. That they seem to have incorporated it into their understanding of what our bodies and and or perhaps our souls do when we die. You know that it's that the the flies moving in and then out of our bodies is is just a part of what is supposed to happen. It's part of the sacrament. Though it's very interesting to see. Cultures in which that uh, that sort of biological knowledge about what happens to a, a human body that's left exposed to the surface elements uh, mm-hmm. gets incorporated into religious beliefs, as opposed to the idea that a body should be you know immediately buried, hidden away to a different place where you you cannot see nature acting upon it as it decomposes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially modern culture, we're so far removed from. From physical death, you know, mm-hmm. that um, and, and, and I think some would argue that we're too far removed from it, you know, that it uh, it makes it more problematic in some cases when it does occur. And it, of course, will occur and it does impact our lives. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to to try and envision how how a culture like this would have handled death, because, because again, it would have been according to, to the way they were discussing it in this article, it would have been a situation where like the body dies, there's some sort of ritual that is conducted, but the body is left out and long enough for the flies to begin to work upon it. And then other funeral customs come into play and then it is eventually buried. And then there may be a phase later on where the tomb is reopened. So it's, um, you know, there's a lot more in and out uh, compared to what we're more accustomed to with our modern funeral rites. Yeah, absolutely.
Okay, so we've been talking about um, legends of, of human funerals for insects. We've been talking about uh, associations between insects, especially flies, and uh, and human funerary rituals in different cultures. But one other thing that I thought would be good to talk about would be how insects deal with their own dead, the funerals within the insect world. Mm-hmm. And uh, one place I was looking was there's a there's a good short article on Nat Geo from 2017 by Allie Wilkinson that collects some really interesting examples of scientific studies and observations about how different types of social insects in particular treat their own dead within and around their nest. And I think if you're looking for the really interesting practices, I think it would be these are especially going to be among social insects. Uh, So the article is called Queen Ants and Other Insects Bury Their Dead. Here's why. Uh, And so just to look at a couple of uh, examples cited here, and maybe we can can come back and talk more about the general theory on on why some of these things happen. Uh, For example, among ants, it is commonly observed that in mature ant colonies, there's a very orderly process for removing dead ants from the nest. Worker ants will locate dead individuals from the colony and then systematically carry their bodies away either to a a place away from the nest, like a trash heap that's removed from the main nest activity, or to a special chamber within the nest. And Wilkinson also points out a cool study from the journal BMC Evolutionary Biology from 2017 by Christopher Pull and Sylvia Kramer reporting that under some conditions – in some ants, even queens will engage in undertaker duties. Uh, we can come back to why that is a bit more uh, later on, but just just to explore what happens in the example of the black garden ant, sometimes in a young qual- uh, colony where there aren't many workers yet, if one of the early queens in the colony dies, the surviving queen will go to the dead queen's body, bite it up into a bunch of pieces, and then bury those pieces herself. Mm. Which kind of goes against the idea of you know the the queen ant or the queen bee you know the 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 queen in a social insect species just being like you know, sitting around and and doing nothing and letting the workers do all the work and uh, basically only existing to fulfill reproductive duties and never having uh, never having any toil to their uh, of their own. Yeah, yeah, that is, it does. Yeah, you you tend not to think about this. You either so you you either go overboard and associate all sorts of like human qualities with the with the ant ruler, um, or you do just think of them fulfilling this one uh, key uh, job within the colony. Though to be clear, I think biologically that is the most important job of theirs, and most yes. of the work of the colony is relegated to these non-reproducing workers. Yeah, but it's like, yeah, just just because you're reproducing all the time doesn't mean you can't clean up a little bit, right? Right. <laughs> uh, so another example, bee colonies. In bees, there appears to be a very well-organized behavior system for quickly ejecting dead bodies from the nest. Looks like they usually just get dropped on the ground outside the nest. And in honeybees, this disposal process tends to happen very fast. It's carried out by a special class of middle-aged worker bees representing about 1-2% to of the population of the nest. And Wilkinson points to a 1983 study by P. Kirk Vischer in the journal Animal Behavior that found really acute time sensitivity in how the bees prioritize body disposal. So, for example, corpses that were one hour old were removed faster than bees that had died just moments before. 
And I think this probably relies on some kind of chemical signal, you know, a, a, a something you can smell coming off of the dead bee, uh, because Vischer notes also that dead bees that were coated in paraffin, which would probably interfere with the, the penetration of smells and stuff, are removed much more slowly. Mm. Uh, and then one last thing in termites, Wilkinson also writes uh, about some interesting behavior in termites, whereas bees and ants tend to remove the dead bodies from the nest or deposit them in a special trash chamber. Termites often bury their dead within the nest. But I guess that gets us to the question of why, like why would insects have these organized, uh, efficient funerary practices for the disposal of the dead within their colonies? And I think there's a pretty clear answer to it, at least a pretty clear primary answer, and that is disease control. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, I was reading, reading a, a, a very um, concise article about this by uh, the authors Sun and Zhao. This was uh, Corpse Management in Social Insects from 2013 in the International Journal of Biological Sciences. And they summed it up as follows. Undertaking behavior is an essential adaptation to social life that is critical for colony hygiene in enclosed nests. Social insects dispose of dead individuals in various fashions to prevent further contact between corpses and living members in a colony. And I think that that kind of puts a nice little tight bow on it right there. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's kind of the concise answer. Um, but, of course, it, it gets a lot more complicated than, than that. And certainly when you get into the, the various specific examples. Um, I, again, I think it's important to note uh, to, to note all this because one, one of the major realities of modern funeral practices is that we often have an almost extreme separation from physical death. Again, some would argue it's even detrimental separation from physical death. But this is, in fact, one of the key factors in having funeral rites and practices to limit the amount of contact between the living and the dead. Not just because the dead can be unsightly and troubling for the living to behold, not only to prop up uh, some notion of continuation of the individual after death, but also because the dead are unhygienic and can serve as disease vectors. Now, with solitary animals, that's one thing, right? Avoidance is usually the best approach if you encounter one of your own dead. But social animals are just going to regularly encounter their own dead. They are, there are essentially three different ways of dealing with your own dead when you encounter them. There's necrophagy, eating the dead. There's corpse removal, and there's burial. And, and necrophagy, as we've discussed in the show before, is pretty widespread in various organisms uh, and is also found in human traditions. It's, it's one solution, though, not, though it's, of course, not without its own complications. Mm -hmm. But as Sun and Zhao point out, while sanitary issues related to corpses are widespread, they are particularly sharp in dense populations for social organisms. And, of course, that, that category certainly includes human beings, but it also includes eusocial insects like bees ants, and termites. And so we see complex responses at the individual and colony level to deal with the dead and uh, to engage in what humans would call undertaking. So they, they point out that for certain uh, social spiders and social aphids, corpse removal is just an indistinguishable part of clearing out a nest site. It's, quote, indistinguishable from dealing with inanimate nest waste. So, so that's one way of approaching it. It's just like if you would get like a, a, a twig or something in your nest area and you'd, you'd clean that out eventually. The same thing happens to the dead aphid. Right. It would be kind of like if you were, um, you know, if you, you, if you had a human house and you were to remove a dead body from your house with about as much um, precaution and, uh, and ceremony as you would take out the trash mm -hmm. where you're like, oh, well, they're dead. So I'll take them out. 
and put them in the trash can. That's kind of what some of these social spiders and social aphids are doing. But they point out that in ants, bees, wasps, termites, we see much more complex modes of behavior in which the treatment of the dead is distinct from the treatment of other waste products. And these methods kind of, uh, they kind of pick from the eat, remove, bury toolbox of possibilities. And I think we see that in some of these specific uh, uh, answers that you uh, already uh, looked at, you know, the idea of, say, cutting up the body of the dead and then burying those pieces of just simply removing the dead and just throwing them out of the colony versus removing them and burying them or in the case of the termites, just burying them within the nest. The one of the really interesting questions, I guess, here is um, among these eusocial insects, how do they know what to do? You know, like how, how do how do they know how to guide and control this behavior? What's the what's the nervous system flow chart for an ant or a bee? to participate in undertaking. Yeah, this is where it gets interesting. You get into a, a lot of, of really uh, deep research uh, over the years because, um, you know, what what is the trigger that causes them to remove the dead? And, and by the way, there's a term for this, for the, the, the removal of the dead, and it is um, uh, necrophoresis. And this is from the Greek, uh, just basically to remove the dead. But it was coined by none other than E.O. Wilson. Oh, OK. Um, you know, the, um, the, the master ant researcher uh, who, um, who, yeah, this was one of his research projects for a while, was like looking at how uh, individual ants within a colony pick up on death and then respond accordingly. So, you know, obviously this is the first step. You have to know what's dead. Uh, is this a live ant or is this a dead ant? Is it getting better? Uh, is it just a flesh wound? Whatever. Uh, you know, you have to be able to, to react accordingly. Uh, you know, it's vital to colony health, and it's based on chemical signals, apparently, um, as is much of, of act, the activity within the ant world. And you can, you can broadly think of the behavior as entailing uh, death recognition and then behavioral responses and then task allocation for dealing with the dead. So Wilson and his fellow researchers identified uh, what they called fatty acid death cues as being important in here. Though subsequent research seems to suggest that those are not the only signals involved because sometimes the response time seems too short. Like the, uh, uh, the ants in question are reacting before the fatty acid death cues would generate. Uh, it, get, it all gets very you know complicated in ant world uh, chemical. Mm-hmm. But... Um, uh, basically, they, they, they seem to lean more into perhaps a chemical vital sign detection by the ants. So it's, it's not just picking up maybe on one chemical that's saying, I'm dead, but it's more of like a, a, a chemical vital sign array that an ant is able to, to pick up on and read. And the, the, in this, uh, this particular Sun and Zhao article, they also write that the term uh, necromone is also used. Uh, this is like pheromone, except uh, related to death. And this has been used to describe sort of the, sort of the, the realm of death recognition chemicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love that, that, the necromone. It sounds like something that would be made up for a Riddick film, you know. <laughs> um, yes. But also fits well within the the ant world, you know, that they would, again, the chemical language of them. I love this idea of these, you know, these these creatures that we often, you know, we, we think about them as being very simple. And they are, you know, in a, in a way, like simple but, but complex parts of this greater whole. And there's this whole language that they're engaged in, this chemical uh, language that um, it, it's kind of a stretch for us to truly imagine it. You know, the, the imagine being able to read the chemical vital signs of uh, other members of our society. 
That is really interesting. It, and weirdly, like it, it gets even deeper because there are some of these behaviors for the uh, eusocial insects removing uh, the dead from their nests that incorporate prioritization of the task based on how much of a disease risk the dead body would actually entail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- that that raises all these other questions, like how can they tell what kind of disease risk this is? Like that, there's a section in that uh, Wilkinson article that talks about a 2013 study in the journal Scientific Reports about uh, about termites that found that the termites would react differently to a dead body within their nest, depending on whether it was a member of their own species or from a very closely related species. Uh, Just to read from Wilkinson, quote, Regardless of whether a corpse uh, of the same species came from their own colony or another colony, it was pulled back into the holding chamber for nutrient recycling and hygienic purposes. But if the corpse was that of a dark southeastern subterranean termite or Reticulotermes virginicus, it was entombed by workers on site with a large group of soldiers standing guard. Ten times as many termites were involved with the burial of this closely related species than the same species, but the extra time, energy, and labor were warranted, researchers found, in the face of external pathogens. So that so there there seems to be some kind of like uh, evolutionary mechanism controlling the behavior here that recognizes certain types of dead termites within the nest as an elevated disease risk uh, because maybe they're bringing in a pathogen that is new to the nest and and could decimate it if it's not disposed of you know immediately and totally even though that might be a very energy intensive process for the colony. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 amazing how these uh, you know the, the each each colony is like this entire immune system. Mm-hmm. And that that brings me back to uh that other uh, study I, I I was talking about earlier, the one in BMC Evolutionary Biology about the black garden ant and how the queens mm-hmm. will sometimes participate in undertaking behaviors if the colony is young and there are not enough workers to help out with it. And this is a situation where there can be multiple co-founding queens in a colony. Actually, uh, just to read from from the abstract of the study, quote, social insects form densely crowded societies in environments with high pathogen loads, but have evolved collective defenses that mitigate the impact of disease. However, colony founding queens lack this protection and suffer high rates of mortality. The impact of pathogens may be exacerbated in species where queens found colonies together as health Healthy individuals may contract pathogens from infectious co-founders. Therefore, we tested whether ant queens avoid founding colonies with pathogen-exposed conspecifics and how they might limit disease transmission from infected individuals. And what this found is when there were these co-founders, these co-founding queens in a colony, if one of the original queens died, the surviving queen again would would do this biting process where they would sort of chomp up the other queen into pieces and then uh, bury and remove the corpse. And the authors here write, quote, these undertaking behaviors were performed prophylactically, i.e. targeted equally towards non-infected and infected corpses, as well as carried out before infected corpses became infectious. Biting and burial reduced the risk of queens contracting and dying from disease from an infectious corpse of a dead co-foundress. So they did actually find this had a survival benefit to the queen that's doing this work because better to be safe than sorry and get that corpse buried just in case it could become infectious. 
Well, this has been interesting. I think by looking at insects and their relationship to death, we've kind of gotten to explore both ends of the spectrum, like the stripped down version of what funeral rites are, like what does it mean to bury the the departed and why do we do it on a very basic level, Uh, but Mm -hmm. then also seeing how uh, some of these, uh, these insects end up being brought into far more elaborate understandings of, of human death as well. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we uh, we could and probably should come back in the future and talk more about funeral traditions. We've talked about funeral traditions on the show before, um, but but yeah, we could come back and discuss sort of like the the early days, like how uh, what are some of the earliest examples of of burial among humans and prehumans, and uh, what does it mean? Like what and, how, and what aspects of it do we still see in our practices today? Yeah, the, those types of things are often interpreted as the earliest signs we have of uh, the development of religion in humans. But, you know, that's a really interesting area with a lot of questions open. Yeah. Uh, on the the ant front, obviously we've we've done plenty of other ant episodes that I'd refer folks back to, including our, our three-parter on ant warfare that we did earlier this year. Uh, but I also want to mention a really great YouTube channel, uh, this is one called Ants Canada. Are you familiar with this one, Joe? I don't think so. I was I was not familiar with it until a, a friend recommended it as something to to show um, uh, kids, and it's I mean it's also really interesting for adults as well. But uh, this uh, individual um, has this entire channel devoted to their various. Uh, ant farms and also habitats for other creatures, but ants are the like the key focus, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's really well done. Lots of great uh, photography and video work. Uh, some of the very topics we've discussed here pop up in the show as as they chronicle uh, the ins and outs of the various ant colonies and how they deal with their dead, how they deal with invaders and stuff of that nature. So uh, my family's really been enjoying it. So if you have any ant fans out there, uh, I, I highly recommend it. It's good stuff. Oh, I just looked this channel up. Uh, I see one title on a popular video here seems to take a page from E.O. Wilson. says, Fire Ants versus My Hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think E.O. Wilson would approve. Uh, um, here's another one. Cockroach giving birth while being devoured by fire ants. Well, yeah, I'll have to give this a shot. Yeah, I think some of these popular ones maybe look they're they make the the channel look a little grizzlier than it actually yeah, is. Of course, uh, uh, but uh, but I'm I mean I'm sure I don't know if I've watched any of these uh, these top ones yet. Uh, I kind of come in and out of the room while it's on sometimes, mm-hmm. but I, I inevitably end up pausing to see what's going on. There'll be some big mystery right. with the colony, and uh, you know they explore and they watch and they figure it out. Of course, whatever is the grossest and most gruesome content on the channel is going to be the most viewed. Well, yeah, that's that is that's what will be rewarded. But you know the ants don't care. They don't care about clicks and subscribers. All right, we're going to go ahead and close it out there. If you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you should check out the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast channel. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Weird House Cinema on Fridays. And uh, we've got Artifact and Listener Mail in the mix as well. Uh, And wherever you listen to the show, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.